Well, good morning, church. Hey, if you're new with us or if you're new watching online, my name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. And I'm going to start with the question, are you ready? Okay. So if you're going to say yes, then here's the deal. As we get started this morning, here's the deal. I need you to listen to what God's word has to say, regardless of the feelings and emotions that are about to come your way. And I need you to agree to listen all the way to the very end. Deal? Yeah. How's that for a start? Uh, We're in the book of Matthew. So how about if you got your Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. If you're new with us, we take our Bibles uh, very seriously. We ask that you bring your Bible, whether it's on a phone or an iPad, good old-fashioned paper works. We ask that you open it, and we ask that you engage with it. Maybe if you're feeling crazy, pull out a pencil, maybe write a few notes in it, uh, write some things down. Uh, This morning, I need to start our time together with a little bit of history, because even a casual student of history recognizes the significance and the impact of the Roman Empire. So whether it's the mythical founding of Rome, whether it's the fall of Troy to the story of the two brothers, Romulus and and Remus, and so on. In fact, the, the final phase of the Roman Empire was really started by Caesar Augustus, and that last phase lasted for over 500 years, like 500 years. It's arguably the greatest and the most influential empire in the history of the world. And really the genius behind the Roman Empire was not its military uh, prowess, though they certainly were incredible in battle. They were one of the most highly disciplined and effective military forces this world has ever seen. Because it was really their infrastructure that made them so brilliant, whether it was the, the Roman roads that they constructed or even the Roman means of conquest, where they would come in, they would conquer a region, they would bring it under the umbrella as a province, and then they would tax them. And in the process of doing that, they created this incredible income stream of wealth that flowed into the Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus, because of that wealth, began to bring in what was called the Roman peace, or what many people have called Pax Romana. And Pax Romana was a time when the people in the provinces of Rome experienced an incredible level of security on land and on sea. Every major enemy had been defeated. And so cities experienced such expansion that they began to move outside of the city walls because there was really no need for city wall because there were no more enemies. Trade was so plentiful, so unhindered that you could get perfumes from Egypt. You could get silk from the Orient. You could get sculptures from Greece and you could get wine from Spain, all just circulating all throughout the Roman economy. The educational system was was unmatched. It had amazing libraries and, and schools, artistic expression through the theater, through mosaics, through frescoes, through sculptures was unrivaled. And the reality was, Pax Romana had influenced the entire ancient world, and it was all funded by taxation. And with every people group that they conquered, they inherited not only the spoils of war, 
but another income source. And taxation-wise, they had an income tax. They had a marriage tax. They had a land tax. They had a wealth tax. They had, you get the point? They had a custom tax. And it taxed all of the ports and all of the roads. In fact, Matthew, the author of this very book, was most likely collecting the custom tax, sitting at the primary trade route outside the city of Capernaum. The Roman tax structure was absolutely unmatched. But the most important and the most controversial of all of the taxes was called the poll tax, so it's also known as the head tax. It was an annual tax levied on every adult male in a home, and it was usually associated with some sort of census. In fact, you read about one of the census taken every Christmas. In Luke chapter 2, in the narrative of Jesus, it tells us, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Those census were not taken just so they could know the number of people. They were taken so they could know the number of people to tax. It wasn't like, hey, this is fun. They they wanted to know how many people to tax. And this tax was controversial for a whole bunch of reasons. First, it was a hassle to all the inhabitants of Rome to journey back to their hometown just to be taxed. And then... Second, it was expensive. You had to pay to go home to be taxed. Which means third, you hated the tax. You thought it was unfair. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, there's actually an interesting interaction with Gamaliel who's talking about a revolt that took place in AD 6. Verse 37 says, After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. He's speaking of a revolt that happened around the same head tax that we've been talking about. But there's also a fourth issue, an issue with the coinage that was required for the tax. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But I think all of this backstory is going to help us better understand what's happening in our text this morning. I think it really informs the intensity of this ambush. And as many of you know, the last several weeks, as we've been walking through Matthew, we've been talking about Jesus and how these religious leaders are challenging his authority. And so Jesus has told three specific parables. He tells the parable of the two sons, the parable of the landowner, and the parable of the wedding feast, the marriage feast. And the principle of all these stories is very simply this. Those who thought they were in meaning the religious elite, are actually out. And those who are out, meaning the irreligious, Jesus said, you're actually in. And Jesus comes out of those three parables and things begin to heat up even further. Look at verse 15. This is what it says. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. It's interesting because it says they went out and plotted. It says they went out and they laid plans. And the language here seems to indicate that they didn't like go home and come back the next day. That's not the language. It's the idea that they went away like around the corner and called a meeting. And if you remember the Temple Mount pictures I showed you from several weeks ago, what I didn't tell you was the Temple Mount is about 36 acres. 
The average football field is 1.5 acres. So the Temple Mount is 24 football fields. On the screen behind me, the green box, that's a football field. So I'm hoping you get a little perspective of how big this place is. So it's more like these guys just sort of walked over there because they could clearly get far enough away, had a little meeting, and, and they want to conspire about how to trick Jesus like right now. And for this next section to make sense, you need to realize that there are three primary sects of the Jewish faith. You have the Pharisees that you saw in verse 15. The Pharisees are the religious purist. They're the religious legalist, if you will. And then you have the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are religious, sure, sort of. But they're far more political than religious And they aligned themselves with Rome and the leadership of the Herods. And the third group is called the Sadducees. They were religious and political. And they loved sitting in positions of authority and influence religiously and politically. But they denied all things concerning the the resurrection. So if you look at the text, what you're going to see is, you'll see the Pharisees in verse 15, you'll see the Herodians in verse 16, and the Sadducees in verse 23. And the reason I point that out now is, these three groups can't agree on where to go to lunch after church. (laughs) They can't agree on anything, especially on how to handle religious issues. And yet right here, what you see is the old proverb. The enemy of my friend is my friend. We can't agree on anything religious, but we have one commonality. We all oppose this person, Jesus. And so look at verse 16. So this is what the Pharisees come up with in their little meeting. Verse 16 says, they sent their disciples, they mean the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. It's a little sad if you think about it because they don't go. They send their disciples. It feels a little cowardly to me. In fact, Luke's account of the same passage, it says that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So this is a full-on setup. This is a full-on ambush. They are trying to trap him in his words. And in verse 16, before they ask their question to trap him, they sort of butter him up a bit. Verse 16 says, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So this is sort of like as a dad, when my son comes up to me and says, dad, I really like that shirt you're wearing. And boy, you look young today. Have you lost a little weight, dad? You know, and as, as dad, our first thought usually is, what do you want? Or depending on your child, what did you do? Right? It's, it's one of those two is what's happening. That's exactly what's happening here. The question is the trap in verse 17. It says, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So this is the poll tax. This is the tax that they revolted about in Acts chapter 5. This is the tax that for decades has been the source of contention and strife. Every Jewish person hates this 
tax. They struggle to pay it every year, and it's been a thorn in their side. And with every tax they pay, every dollar they pay, who does it fund? It funds the Roman Empire. So Jesus, is it lawful to pay it or not? Please, please, please say no, right? That's a, please, please say no. But here's what they were after. They wanted to place Jesus in an apparent lose-lose situation. With the Pharisees present, who are the religious legalists, the, the, the purists, if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay the tax, then his Jewish brothers and sisters would call him a traitor, and they would sentence him to death. But the Herodians were also present, and they were in bed with the Roman Empire. And if Jesus says, no, 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 it's not lawful, then the Herodians would say, you're a traitor, and they would want to put Jesus to death. So he's in an apparent lose-lose situation. But what the guys don't realize is they're picking a fight with the wrong guy. They're picking a fight with the wrong guy. Look at verse 18. It says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Jesus says, you actors, you pretenders, you intentional deceivers, why do you ask me this question? So Jesus answers in verse 19. It says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a Daenerys, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription is this? Caesar's, they reply. Now, I told you three reasons why this tax was contentious, but here's the fourth reason, and it has to do with the coin. A Daenerys was a coin used for a typical day's wage for the common laborer or the common soldier. And on one side of the coin was the face of the emperor Tiberius. The other side of the coin had the emperor Tiberius seated on a throne clothed in purple. He is one of the few emperors that forced the claim of deity and that he was to be worshipped as a god. And so the reason this was controversial to the Jewish people is that the Jewish coinage never had images of a man on it. So the Jews' coins had no pictures of men. Why? Because Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. It's one of the big 10. <laughs> like if you're only gonna follow 10, pick the big 10. Right? It's the Ten Commandments. They believe that a coin with a man's face on it, it would be considered idolatry or a carved image, let alone a coin of a ruler who claimed to be a god. And you had to offer that coinage not just in reverence to the Roman Empire, but as an expression of worship to the emperor himself. And you're Jewish. And so they were in a very difficult spot, even with this coin, because this coin not only was a reminder of Roman oppression, but they saw it as an expression of idolatry. And so they're asking Jesus, is it lawful to pay the tax or not? And Jesus answers this in verse 21. It says, then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? 
Jesus says if Caesar's inscription and Caesar's likeness is on the coin, then just give to Caesar that which already belongs to Caesar. Jesus takes the position that this is something that is a debt that's already owed to the Roman government. So just give back to Caesar what's already his. Now, stay with me because this is going to make sense in just a minute. Jesus recognizes the idea that you're paying a tax not only as a legal obligation, but as a religious obligation. Because look, you're under Roman rule and you are walking on Roman roads. Who paid for those? You know, who, who, who paid for You're enjoying the benefits of being in a Roman province. You have the protection of Roman security. So just give back to them what is already due them for what they have already provided for you. They've already provided some things for you. So give back to them what's theirs. So taxation in this context was not only something that Jesus legitimizes, he says it's the duty of a believer as an expression of their obedience to God. He does not tell them, listen, skip paying the taxes because they're a bunch of pagans. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, listen, you know, skip the tax. You don't have to pay the tax because they're a bunch of morons and, and you don't believe in their policies anyways. It's not what he says. He simply said, render to them What's due them? And here's what might just blow your mind about this text. Jesus right here, he's days away, days away from dying. Jesus is authorizing, maybe even mandating payment of the tax from the people of God to the very political authority who in just a few days is going to execute him and send him to the grave. It's like, like who would say that? Yes, yes, please fund the people who are going to kill me. That's, that's crazy talk. And so Jesus holds up a coin and begins to talk about an image. And he begins to talk about an inscription. And what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror. And the question he's really asking from a Jewish perspective is, whose image are you? What inscription is written on you? You're thinking about the coin. I want to talk about you. Give all those coins, like give all that stuff to them. It doesn't matter anyway, but you give God your life. Give him your heart and your soul. You are the very handiwork of God with my desires and my law and my will inscribed on your heart. And so they're stumped. Verse 22 says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Because really, what do you say to that? Like, well, he, he totally flipped it on them. Tell me he's not a ninja because they have no response whatsoever. They just like stand there with their mouths open and they sort of walk away like, right? You know, they don't know what to say because they wanted black and white. They wanted either or. And what's interesting here is it seems like Jesus is saying that it's not about submitting to governing authorities or submitting to God as if those two things are in opposition to each other. But what Jesus is saying is you actually submit to authority as an expression of your submission to God. Still glad you're here? Hold on, it gets better. And so here's where we need to wrestle with this. And I'm pretty confident everyone's not going to like this. 
But in 2020, our world went a little weird, didn't it? That's the understatement of the morning. Everything shut down. Bars, nightclubs, restaurants, sporting events, churches, movie theaters, and more. There's a season where even you watched church from home, maybe in your lazy boy, <laughs> on your couch. You know, some of us maybe watched when you were exercising or you listened while you were in your car. It was a time where we had stickers on the ground showing us what six feet apart actually meant. For a season, we didn't hug. You didn't high five. You didn't shake hands. We all learned the nuances of wearing surgical masks. Who thought that was so hard? And at times, it felt like we were living in something out of the movies, like World War Z or out of the movie Contagion. We saw people wearing gloves. We saw schools canceled. We watched the government begin to tell us what is essential and what is non-essential. And that caused all sorts of people to lose their minds. What do you mean this is essential? And what do you mean that this over here is, is not essential? And the reality is it came at a huge cost. People were losing their jobs. People were losing their businesses. People lost loved ones. Lots of people were losing hope. And so how do you respond in the middle of that? For us here at Faith Covenant, it felt like people were mad at our church leadership every single week. And they told us repeatedly that what we were doing was incredibly wrong or what we were doing was incredibly right and everything in between. It was so hard and the elders and staff here at Faith Covenant worked hard to do their very best to lead through it all. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, Jesus, what do we do? Like, what do we do? And if you looked around our country, even around our city, some churches closed meeting together in all forums for over two years. Other people in churches just said, you know what? We're going to disregard the governing authorities and restrictions, and we're going to do what we feel is right. And other people in churches were like, y'all are crazy. I'm not leaving the house. You've got everything in between that. And so how do we, in our context, apply this passage? How do we render to Caesar that which is already Caesar's? And how do you render to God that which is already God's? And now to be clear, what I don't think is that 2,000 years ago, God planted a COVID-19 passage right here for us to uncover in the midst of our crazy town world, okay? That's not what happened uh, with this passage. But I do think there's a principle in this passage that Jesus is teaching for his day that I think has some implications for us in our day. And so before you get all fired up again, can I simply start by saying this is a nuanced issue, and so it's not as black and white as you might actually think. And this is what we wrestled with as a leadership team back then. And so anytime you look at scripture, the way you interpret scripture properly is you let scripture interpret scripture. Because otherwise I take a passage and I just tell you what, I, what it means and we don't compare it to the other passages. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans 13 to start with. I'll put it on the screens behind me and I'll put every verse up there at, as we look at it. So this is what Romans 13 verse 1 says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established 
by God. So if you think about it, and you remember the story of when Jesus is standing before Pilate, and they're having this conversation back and forth, and Pilate starts talking to Jesus about Pilate's kingdom. And you can almost picture Jesus rolling his eyes like, look, bro, you you don't have any authority at all except for the one given to you by God. Like, so don't get cocky. Like, because he's like, you think you have authority? No, no, no. The kingdoms of this world, there's a kingdom coming. It's not yours. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 13. And he goes on in verse 2. It says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Still glad you're here? Yeah. So every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. Why? Because there's no authority except from God. And so those who are in authority exist there because they have been established by God, which means he doesn't care what you think about the president of the United States. He does not care whether you like him or don't like him. It doesn't matter. You know, whether you like our current governor, whether you think he's good or you think he's bad, God's like, I don't care. He's not like, oh, they've got questions. I better rethink my agenda. Like, that's not how God's working. So whether you like our mayor or you don't like our mayor, it doesn't matter. God has appointed them whether I like it or not. All authority is established by God. And so look at verse 5. It says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. And you might say, Kevin, why on earth would I do that? When the guy who's leading doesn't even know Jesus, so how could he possibly be a servant of God? Well, I want you to keep in mind that as you read your Bible and you go all throughout your Bible, God uses godly people. And he uses ungodly people as tools in his hands, and God uses them however he wishes, not how I want. He uses them the way he wishes, whether it's the Persian King Cyrus or our current political leaders now. And in verse 7, Paul writes, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The teaching here is, give to all what is due them. And I would even argue that with that in mind, if we are getting regulations or we're getting requirements from the government saying, hey, this is what we're asking you to do, then it seems like we need to give to them what is due them, which is submission to governing authorities out of reverence to God. And some of you are like, Kevin, you're picking and choosing. Great, let's look at another passage. See what else the Bible says. Titus chapter 3 is another good cross-reference. I'll put it on the screen so you don't think I'm making it up. Verse 1 says, remind the people, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Now, 
before you storm out here for a second, what you need to understand about both the Romans' context and the context right here in this Titus passage is they are written when the ruler at the time was the Emperor Nero. And Nero is arguably the most morally corrupt, perverted, and warped individual in your entire Bible. He would release, he's murdering Christians for sport. He would take Christians to the woods, release them in the woods, and him and his friends would hunt them for sport. He would take Christians, tie them to poles, and light them on fire as candles to light his parties. This is the guy that martyred the apostle Paul. This is the guy that martyred the apostle Peter. Paul is writing in both Romans and Titus saying, hey church, submit to that guy. Submit to that guy. Even that guy has authority because God has put him in that place. And I say that so that we can keep things in perspective and don't say things like, it's never been this bad on Christians ever before. Because last I checked, no one in here is getting hunted for sport. None of my friends have been lit on fire to light parties. Like, so let's like, keep it in perspective because it's been incredibly worse. So we have this martyr syndrome sometimes in the West. It has been way worse. And so here's the hard truth. Christianity is not a political revolution. That is not what this is. Following Jesus is not about rioting and torching and massive protest. Christianity is ultimately a revolution against the mastery of sin. Christianity is about inviting all who respond to the gospel into a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity, in many ways, is a revolution of the heart, not a political movement. And here's what Paul and Jesus' point is. As long as the governing authorities are not forcing us to sin or actively opposing the sharing of the gospel, we are called by God to submit to governing authorities as an expression of our reverence to Christ. Because in Acts chapter 5, the disciples are standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is giving the disciples strict orders to not continue teaching about Jesus. They are not to continue teaching in the name. They must stop talking about this and they can no longer share the gospel with anyone. Everybody else can share whatever they want, but Christians have to stop. And the disciples are like, okay, like if that's the case, then we have to rebel. But I would say, is that really where we were? Were shelter-in-place orders that we experienced forcing us to sin? I would say no. Now, does the Bible say that we should not forsake our assembling together? Certainly. But are these edicts forcing us to actively sin? Are they opposing us sharing the gospel? No. See, some people felt yes, but that's not true. It just meant we had to get creative and maybe stop being so complacent as the church. Because church people don't like change. We don't like change. You know, it meant that we have to change. And, and so was the government intentionally trying to religiously persecute us by saying, everybody else can meet, but not you Christians. You need to quit teaching about Jesus. I would argue no. Now, I know that there's some conversations, by the way, about essential, right, and non-essential. 
Those are big words we learned during the pandemic. And unfortunately, people have said that this is religious discrimination because big box stores, for example, were considered essential. The church was not. But here's the problem. Here's what we missed. We were equating value with essential. It's not the same thing. It wasn't about value. The church was considered non-essential, not because it wasn't important. In fact, as I met with city leaders through that time, our city leaders said the church was important. They said it was absolutely important. Sometimes a church scattered is more effective than a church gathered. Sometimes a church scattered is more effective in our city than a church gathered. Think about it. As I talk to the city leaders, who was providing so many meals for people in need? Believers. Who was caring for their neighbors with groceries and medicine and masks? Believers. Who was still bringing foster kids into their home through the whole pandemic? Believers. Who was coming alongside the least of these? Believers, the church was and still is essential when it comes to the expression of the gospel in our community. But what the government suggested didn't speak to value. They just didn't know what they were doing because nobody knew what they were doing. We didn't have enough information about this virus. And let's be honest, going to church and going to Walmart are not the same thing. And if it is, you're doing one of the two of those wrong, <laughs> right? Because if 150 people walk through Walmart singing praises, that would be different, right? There's a billion differences between those two things. And don't get me wrong. I had plenty of concerns about what was coming our way informationally and from a policy perspective. And I wasn't a fan of how things were handled. But I have to tell you, I am very thankful that what we just went through was a public health issue and not a religious issue. No one that I know was being murdered for sport. No one was being lit on fire. I mean, nobody that I know, people didn't show up and say, you're a Christian and I just burn your job to the ground. I just burn your small business to the ground. Just because you're a Christian. Perspective is a powerful thing. And so just so you don't think I'm still making stuff up, I'll show you 1 Peter chapter 2. It's what Peter writes. Submit yourselves. By the way, this is the guy that was martyred by the emperor. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And so as elders and pastors, we wrestled big time with what it means to submit to authorities. And I want to stress the point that if the governing authorities ever try to force us to sin, or if the governing authorities ever try to, try to force us and, and actively hinder us discriminatorily, the progress of the proclamation of the gospel, we would, of course, have to do something about that. Things would be different. And I have to admit that most people at Faith Covenant were very gracious and were very patient with us as leaders. Most, not all. <laughs> I got called a lot of names during that season. And beware this whole shutdown thing. You know what? 
It may happen again. And as believers, we have a divinely inspired book that directs and guides our decisions. Not my feelings, not my emotions, not my wants and my preferences. We have a divinely inspired book that directs and guides our decisions. So let's make sure we use it and we stay prayerfully dependent as we make decisions. See, what many people miss is a biblical church never closes because a real biblical church isn't a building. It's not a building. So when you come in and go, why the door is locked to the church? No, the building's locked. The church is wide open for business because it's about people. And I wonder if our rantings about political leaders gets in the way of us praying for our political leaders. And as I pray, it might not ever change their decisions, but as long as I know God, I trust that he is sovereign over it all. And I may not like or trust person A or B in leadership, but I know, God, you are sovereign even over that person. Even when I don't agree with or like their decisions. So God, I just lift that person up to you and may you have your way in their life. And I trust in your will, not mine. I trust in your plan, not theirs. I trust in your leadership, not ours, and therefore I can submit to their authority knowing that ultimately you are sovereign over it all, and if I truly live into that, that gives me peace. That brings me hope. That gives me joy that that guy or that woman isn't really in charge. The God of the universe is. That's what I'm trusting in. So we believe that two things can be true at the same time. One, we can submit to governing authorities. And two, we can ultimately submit to God. And the good news I clung to throughout the entire season that we were in was our church is a people and not a building. The good news is that our vision and our mission here at Faith Covenant has not changed. We're going to help people look more like Jesus every day in every way, and that is not dependent upon a building. We're going to help people connect to one another and connect to one another in neighborhoods all throughout our city, and we're going to do this whether we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic or we're not. We're going to help people look more like Jesus and connect you in your neighborhoods. Why? Because that's who we are, and whether this happens again or not. Whether we wear masks again or never again, we're going to continue to help people look more like Jesus every day, in every way, in every area of your life, because that's who we are. It's not like some program about what we do. It's who we are as people. And so my, my point this morning is not to be political. I want us to be biblical. I want us to read our Bibles and it seems like we need to render to Caesars that which is Caesars and render to God that which is God's. And I can submit to governing authorities, whether I like it or not, as an expression of my submission to my God who is sovereign over it all. I know, like it or not, all around this world, when things start getting more difficult and more out of control, the more powerful and louder the gospel message seems to be. 
the crazier the dedication and the boldness of the church becomes. Like, look at China. Look at Russia. Look at the Koreas. Look at all the places where they were forced to go underground. And so I don't know what this next year might hold for us as a country. And I certainly don't know what this next year holds for us as a city. And if I'm honest, I don't even know what this looks like for us next year as a church. But I do know this. Our church is going to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Pandemic, no pandemic. We're going to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Recession, no recession. We're going we're to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, strife or no strife. It doesn't matter because we're going to match gospel words with gospel deeds, rendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's and rendering to God that which is God's because we are made in his image and his words are written on our hearts. Amen. 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 Father in heaven.